Hello, this is Pablo Sabaleta. This is Troy Deeney. This is Kevin Phillips. This is Jürgen Klopp and you are listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. We interviewed Owen Hargreaves for this big interview in a very goldfinger situation, an august tree-lined golf course, bond Then we moved on to football and ice hockey and basketball. I wanted to know why it was that Stefan Effenberg, remember him? Kicked Owen all the time. What Hitzfeld, yeah, Otmar Hitzfeld said to Owen Hargreaves that stunned him then and sticks with him until today. Frankly, this is above and beyond anything that you'd normally get from a footballer talking about his career because there's ice hockey and basketball. Listen, it's all in here. Owen Hargreaves, welcome. I often wish that this was a, a visual medium, not just an audio medium, because we're sitting in a beautiful clubhouse, straight out the door, I, I can sniff... Uh, the freshly cut fairways of a golf club, we can just from time to time hear the titlers been hit a good 280 yards down the fairway. And uh, I wish people could see it because it's a bloody fine place to interview um, a double Champions League winner. And therefore I'm going to throw you a curveball, which given your North American upbringing you'll understand the meaning of. If you're a golfer and you're a golf fan, how was the weekend for you? Did you follow any of the Ryder Cup? Did, does golf inspire you in any way whatsoever, apart from being able to hit the ball nicely as you do? When I was a young kid, we in Canada, obviously it was pretty cold in, in Calgary where I grew up. So you know we had minus thirty winters. It was very seasonal. So in the summers, when the weather was good, you, you tried to play all different sports outside. And we moved to neighborhoods as a kid when I was about eight. And because it, in Canada all the developments are new, you know, you, they kind of go further out and they just pop up. And uh, we got a free golf membership with the, with the area. So, you know, my brothers and, and my dad, we used to play. And then when I went to Europe to play football, because I used to only get a few weeks off, when I used to come home, I have two older brothers and my dad, we had the perfect football. So that was a way for us to bond and hang out together and, and connect and, you know, have a couple of beers and have a bit of competition, but a bit of fun too. So... Golf, I never took serious, but it was something I loved, and it was a way for me to, you know, spend four hours with your, with your dad and your brothers, and, and just have a laugh. It's a good way to explain it because um, golf, for most people, is not a laugh. It's it drives you absolutely crazy. Yeah, it drives me even mad too. Yeah, okay, we we share something at least. Then, but you strike it cleaner than I do. When we did one of our guests on this, it was Stan Petrov, very good uh, Bulgarian midfielder for Aston Villa and Celtic, as you know. And um, we did that at the Belfry. So I said to him, and I'm going to repeat the trick. I don't know if you talk to the ball or talk to your clubs, but when you're not a particularly good player like me, I reach in and go, no, no way I'm striking a four iron, that's not my friend. And I go, yeah. a six, that's my friend, even if it's the right club or not. Are any of the clubs your friend? You know what? Because I grew up in Canada, 
I played a lot of ice hockey in the winter. So I held a, a golf club like a hockey stick, yeah. left-handed. So when I went onto the course at a young age, I held it like a, like a hockey stick. Yeah. But what I realized four years later, I was holding it the wrong way around. <laughs> but because I, I was a decent athlete, I could, could, smash it. It I, it, I could yeah. figure it out. So I always played cack-handed up until about a month ago. And, um, and when quite I, a long time. So when I played with all the lads, on all the, with England and Man United and all that, I used to be on the first hole and everybody used to think, how the hell is he holding the golf club? But then I'd hit it and I'd smash it further than them. <laughs> and they'd go, is this a wind-up? <laughs> so for me, you know, I never knew how to play golf, mm-hmm. which sounds ridiculous because I've, I've played it for so long, but I never knew how to strike a ball properly. I never knew how to hold the club properly. Yeah. It was all self-taught. And then when I stopped playing, I think for whatever reason, my timing and hand-eye coordination and didn't have any time to dedicate to playing golf because my knee was bad. I couldn't be on the course. So now I've just broke it all back down, started from scratch. Oh, that's a test. I just did it a month ago. And you know what? To answer your question, I used to look in the bag and go, no, I'm not hitting that five, yeah. I'm not hitting that. Whereas now, some, I've had a lesson, I've held the club properly. Now I can hit every club properly. The shape of the ball is proper. The, the club flight path is proper. And now I actually understand golf. Whereas before, I actually played golf, but I didn't understand the technical elements that went into it. So... I'm learning to play a new sport, which I've played for over a decade, which this is ridiculous. This is quite exciting. This is quite exciting because the pro tour beckons, I reckon, in which case, if you've been knocking it far and, and beating fellow pros cack-handed and now you're going to be good, we're going to follow your career. Well, no, I, I mean, you know, for me, when I, when I played football, I never had the dream I could be a professional football player. Not in a million years. I grew up in Canada watching Michael Jordan. I couldn't even watch football on Sally because of the time difference. So when I went to Bayern and I wore 23 because of Michael Jordan, that was my hero as a kid, so I never really had the vision that I, that could be, you know, that could be something for me. And when I was able to get in that position and then see, remember when I went on trial at Bayern Munich, I didn't even know, I didn't know Bayern Munich, I didn't know anyone there. Um, and after about 30 seconds in, I thought, wow, I'm onto a winner here. You know, you just feel it, you know? I thought, I thought I was gonna be way out of my depth, you know, a 15-year-old kid from Canada on trial at the biggest club in Germany. And I was thrown in and I thought, well, yeah, I'm better than these. So for me, that was like a moment where I was like, right, now, now I'm going to go again. Forget being, you know, the, the, the most talented player in my area. Now I've gone up a level. So, and, then you, and then you dedicate everything to it. The same with golf, you know. Even though I, do, I have no interest in being a great golfer, now that I feel like I'm onto something, I want to suss it out, you know. You I want to believe it. I want to, I want to make sure I do better because that's, I think, that's what helped me become a pro when I mm. probably never should have been. I was, you know, I was lucky. I was quick and I had great endurance and technically I wasn't bad. But my greatest attribute was I could, I could probably outwork most people, much even better players than me. And I think that's because I had two older brothers who used to kick the life out of me. So when I played against people my age and stuff, I could draw on that experience of competing against my older brother who was five, six years older. And my competitiveness is what took me to, to a career I probably should have never had from where I grew up. It's not polite at the beginning of an interview to state that I'm going to argue with you about that. But I, I, the reason I'm here, apart from us getting to know each other, is that I watched you at a stage where I was despairing about English football and um, their inability to use their talent well, the, the evident talent well. And I was living in Spain. What I saw in you, what I watched in you, which we're going to come to, because I have to go back to ice hockey. Is, was the football brain, was the football intelligence on a pitch. Now, whether that was innate or partly taught at Bayern Munich is something we could come back to, but I cannot, no guest ever, 
well, like when we talked about golf with Stan Petrov, we ended up talking about the fact that he'd been, he had to do his military service and he could strip down a gun blindfolded and use a gun really well and that helped him with his handling of clubs, which was a kind of strange anecdote, mm-hmm. as was ice hockey. Now, looking at you now, there's no particular scars, now, maybe you weren't a Wayne Gretzky or whatever, but how do you play ice hockey? The puck moves so fast. I can sit and watch it. I can't understand what's happening. But you know what? If you grow up in Canada, you play hockey. It's just a fact. I was never inside, you know. So I used to come home from school at half three or whatever. And if it was nice out, we'd either play street hockey in front of the house or, or we'd be shooting hoops. We had a basketball net on the drive and we just, you know, we put a little back. I can't believe it was an old nice sound. We had a ghetto blaster <laughs> out front. We would set it and we'd just play some, some tunes and shoot hoops. So in the winter, you couldn't do that in, in minus 30. So we used to, used to come home, drop the school bag off, ice rink. And you used to come home when it was dark and have dinner. So for me in the winter, you know, I played, I played ice hockey. And then when I wasn't playing ice hockey... We had two seasons of, of football. We had the outdoor when it was nice weather, mm. and then we had the indoor mm. when it was minus 30. So we used to have, in, we'd play in hockey rinks basically, but it was turfed. So AstroTurf, a form of. AstroTurf, yeah. yeah. But it was a hockey rink basically, yeah. essentially, and it was 5v5. So you think that the refs would be in the middle, you'd have two benches like hockey, that would be the players are, and you could just cut them on and off whenever you felt like it. You know, it was a brilliant way of, 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 of playing football and a different style of football. So f- for me, I was lucky growing up in Canada. I got to play so many different sports. You know, I played tennis when the weather was good. I played golf. I played ice hockey. Not lacrosse? No, I didn't really like lacrosse. I loved hockey, but the problem with hockey was, hockey was before school, which is ridiculous for your parents. I mean, think about how much work it takes to get your kids ready, you know, get them out the house. But so we're talking 6 a.m.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, in and around there. And then you've got to get the kids to school, and then they've got to get to work. So my parents said, look, you've got to pick one or the other, because I had football <laughs> after school. So you've got to pick one or the other because it's killing us, you know. So I played hockey for fun, then after, and then football. I mean, before I moved to Bayern Munich, I, I probably played more basketball than football, mm. seriously. How, how were you with the basketball? I loved basketball because yeah. I was pretty useless at it. But um, I loved the fact that it didn't come naturally to me. Um, so I really had to work at it, and I was a point guard on my, on my high school team. I couldn't really shoot, but because I was so quick... I could make things happen, and defensively I was good. So, I, like nicking the ball in mid Yeah, yeah, I could. Yeah, so I was, you know, I was, I was the creator, the playmaker, and then um, and defensively, you know. But I was probably too quick for my own good, really, because I, I was, I was just kind of all over the place. But I loved it, and then in the end, playing so much, I got a, quite a good vertical, you know. So I could, I could dunk a basketball, even though I was tiny. So, the, so it's not based on height, because what we're used to is like. To get up and, and dunk, okay, the spring is everything. But if you're six seven, it helps a little bit. And you're, yeah. you're not six seven. Yeah. So what was the trajectory of the jump? Or no, you just have a, a, a spring, you know. Uh, but maybe it was because I grew up where our house was. Basically, I was playing uphill all the time. So that probably made my calves probably <laughs> abnormally strong, which I never really realized at the time. But then when I went and played basketball with all the uh, older guys, you know, which we used to play on, with, with my mates. We used to go to this, this rec gym and we used to just play pickup games. And I used to go in and get a rebound. And he said, how the hell did you oh, get yeah. that, you, oh, yeah. you, you, little, you, you little midget? And I said, I don't know, I can just jump, you know. So I loved basketball because it was, it was so different from football. Where football, I came from, my dad's a very good football player. Yeah. My, my older brother was a, was a really good football player. They probably both should have been pro. So I only played because I wanted to, be like them, whereas basketball wasn't in the family. It was just something I loved watching. Now, you know, I met Michael Jordan and interviewed him and I met him and um, 
big, imposing, um, tremendous athlete, well-dressed, got that, not swagger, but that sureness that a great has that just emanates off him. You can smell greatness, and it's in the eyes as he looks at you too. The thing that struck me was these great big paws yeah. of his, cut, bound, leathery, gashes everywhere, little um, hard pieces of skin, and the amount of tape on his hands. Now, how basketball does that to your hands, even with the ball, I can't imagine. That's my little m- memory of Jordan. But if you were to use things that people don't play basketball to describe what Jordan meant to you or why caught your imagination... You know, people around the world listen. So some of them are basketball fans. Some people listen to this man even know that he's not Joe Jordan's brother. So what about Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan, for me, was the greatest athlete I ever saw in any sport. And he transcended an, an era where, you know, basketball was different back then. You know, I think he was one of the first athletes to shave his head. Mm-hmm. You know, he was one of the first back then. All the shorts were really tight. You know, they looked like swimming trunks. So he, he kind of wore the baggy shorts. He was the first one to have these signature shoes. So, you know, forget the basketball side, which is, you know, he's the greatest basketball player ever. You know, he, he took that sport and and created this whole the old image you know, that maybe that even you see now in football with all the big personalities with Ronaldo's and and Messi's and I think he was you know one of that that superstar athlete that had all this talent but also you know he, he became an icon I mean that Jordan brand now is almost on par with with Nike in terms of value you know it's a billion dollar brand you know this is a guy that was was a young kid uh, was a basketball player so he he kind of he caught everyone's attention as a, in North America and um you know, I just love watching him. And then to remember thinking, as a kid, I never thought I'd be a professional athlete. So I was just trying to get on the cusp of the first team. And, and they were talking about, oh, you know, about all these silly things that as a kid you wouldn't think of. But, like, your shirt number and, like, autograph cards back in the day, you sell them and stuff. And I was like, am I going to get one of those? Am I going to get one of them? And I had to pick my shirt number. I remember thinking, and they was like, he's 23, is it free? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I was like, yes, I, you know, I can, I can say Michael Jordan on my back. You know, so for me... He was just somebody I looked up to. I didn't have any football idols as such because I couldn't watch it. You weren't seeing much football. So it was my dad and my brother. Then when I got into football, when I came over to Europe and I could see Zidane play, and, you know, Verona, Lazio, and, and, and Dave Beckham at United, you know, and Giggsy and Steve McMahon, they started to become people I could relate to because they were closer to me and I could see them more. And then I looked at their games and my games and say, how can I implement some of their things into... It? into me. I think I saw, and I'm going to come back and talk to this probably, particularly for England, particularly in the World Cup, where I looked at you and I thought, that's a completely different breed of player. I remember writing at the time, wrote quite a lot about you, thinking, this is the missing piece that will make all the talent blend. What struck me was, I'd rarely seen an English player so intelligent about space and closing and what to do with the ball once he received it, or showing for the ball, but particularly asphyxiating dangerous players, anticipating what was going to happen, and then saying, right now, guys, I'm going to give it to you, Gerard Lampard, whatever it might be. Yeah. Now, listening to your description of basketball and the mindset it needs and the anticipation, because it's not pure athletic speed that gets you into those situations. Yeah. You have to read what the other team is going yeah. to do, and the ball moves so quickly, as it does with ice hockey. Mentally, that was 
quite a, that was an SAS training in in anticipation of, of opposing players that you had with the speed of those two games. Yeah, but when I came into Bayern Munich, it was just I don't think a youth team player had come through for four or five years. So young players didn't come through. And the team was so established. And young players and older players, it was the opposite of England where they really helped the young kids. You know, there was a big divide between the old and the young. And uh, for me, you know, once I kind of came in, I couldn't afford to make mistakes because if you make mistakes, you stick out. Yeah. You know, so you learn quickly, you know, I got to make good decisions. I got to be in the right places at the right time. I can't stick out negatively. And uh, I remember my manager at the time, Obmar Hitzfeld, I, I just started training and uh, I was training pretty well. And some of the older guys were getting pissed off uh, a little bit with me. Uh, and he pulled me aside once after, after a session. He said, look, oh, did I can't tell you any more than this because I'm on the old guy's side. But he said, this way it works is if they're pissed off with you, if they don't like you. Because if they don't like you, it means you're a threat to them. And he said, the only way this way, you've got to hunt them every day on the football pitch. Off the pitch, you've got to be respectful of, of your elders and you've got to open doors and carry balls and carry goals. But on the pitch, they got to take notice. And he said that they're mad at you. He said, trust me, you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. And it was the best piece of coaching advice I was ever given, you know, because it made me realize as much as you have to be respectful, when I get on the football pitch, you know, you got to go after everyone. It doesn't matter who they are, as big as they are. And, uh, and you got to trust your instincts. And once, once I started to figure that out and, you know, and, and learn when and where I could make mistakes, then, uh, then it kind of all starts to come together. It's a tremendous sense of liberation when a leader, somebody upon whom your future rests, says to you, uh, son, you're bang on there. That gives you a liberation because you've intuited what you've had. You've had to work out, how do, how do I treat, um, I don't know, Kafur or Effenberg yeah. or Sveini was after you, the big, the big dogs. Salah Medjic. I, I don't yeah. know who, who you gave the biggest chasing to. Linka, maybe, on the training ground. Who you, who no, Effenberg, he off. kicked me every day for a year. Every day he kicked me for a year. And uh, I remember one day, I was coming towards the end of the season, and we were, we, we were, on, we were, we were at a friendly in, in Africa somewhere. I forgot where. I was about to get on the, the plane just before, and he was in front of me. I said, no, Effenberg, you go first. And he said, no, I said, oh, and you go first. He said, you're going to be my successor. You, you earn the right. You know, just off the cuff. And I thought, what's going on here? I said, this is a weird moment. But, you know, it was almost like the young kids don't really get that now. But for me, they, you have to earn their respect and earn their trust. You know, nobody else was there. And, uh, and I just think every time you used to kick me, you should pick me back up. And I didn't say anything, you know. But I would try and give as good as I could get. But I would never make it personal. But the point is, sport at that level is about competition. Mm. Whether it was my older brother I was competing with, or then Effenberg, you know, you... You have to learn to cope with that environment. I think a lot of young kids, that's difficult, you know, to, to come into that environment. You come from an academy where you, everything's catered for you. You're the best player. You're Man City or you're Liverpool, you're Man United. You, you blow away every team, seven and eight, nil. All of a sudden, you come into men's football and it's all about competition. You can't afford to make mistakes, you know. You have to be competitive. And I think some of the kids coming through now, they can all play, but can you compete? That's, that's, that's one of the... The greatest attributes I think any athlete can have is, is can you compete? Because, you know, I think football players are, you only really know them when it's bad. You know, when it's bad, then you see people's true colours. And football's easy when, when you're winning and, you know, the weather's good and stuff. Am I hearing an explanation for a question I wanted to ask you about Sunday the 5th of July 1998? And for anybody who thinks Bjorn Anderson was uh, part of ABBA, 
He wasn't. He was your, <laughs> your coach. Yeah, he's the guy that brought me to Bayern. Yeah, Borussia Dortmund 2, Bayern Munich 1 on penalties. I'm going to read it quickly because nobody's ever heard of any of them. Uh, Mario Bartolovic, Sebastian Bakker, Stefan Struntz, Christian Lesman, Niles Eric Johansson, Owen Hargreaves, Michael Fisher, Thomas Rice, Patrick Merzel, Stefan Huffman, Berkant Gürktan, and the Dortmund team, which should be full of people where we go, oh yeah, I know him, isn't. And that uh, cup final <laughs> ends with eight consecutive penalty misses and Dortmund wins. And the point that struck me when I was looking at your background was nobody from those 29 players used, I don't know quite why there were four substitutes used by Dortmund, none of them really came through to, to senior, senior successful level except you. Berkhan Gugtan was probably the best youth player I've ever seen in my life. He was like the old Brazilian Ronaldo. At seven. He played in the first team at 17. But then he went into the first team, he was nutmegging everyone, and the, the old guys started getting mad, they started smashing around. He went on loan and it never worked out. But that was probably one of the most talented players I've ever seen in my life. So it just shows you, you can get to that point and still fail, you know, if the variables aren't right. You know, Patrick Milter, he was a number 10 for Germany. He was a super player. Sebastian Bakker, everybody said he was, he was going to be the Mateus in, in 10 years. Stefan Hoffmann, I'm the godfather to, to his daughter. He, he became player of the year in Austria uh, a few years. So all the guys are in the same position. You're, you're in a position to strike, you know, but you've got to take the chance. And I remember as much as, you know, I was in around the first year I was training, I remember we played Real Madrid in the, in the semi-final. And I had played quite a few games, but not, not anything like that. And I remember, I think Effenberg was suspended. And they weren't sure who to play. And they had Sforza and they had Fink and they had all these, you know, kind of veteran guys. And uh, Omar Hitzel picked me to play. And I remember thinking before the game, Luis Figo at the time, I think he was the most expensive player in the world. And I loved Luis Figo. And Ivan Helguer was one of my heroes. You know, I, I loved him as well. So... I remember thinking before the game, uh, and just thinking, I'm in trouble here. Luis Figo, you know what I mean? This is, this is a long way from... from your third from midfielder that you're up against was Guti. Guti, yeah, I love So if the other two weren't on it, it was, there was only Guti to worry about. From, you know, a young kid from Calgary, and, I, and then I remember uh, Figo, he tried to dribble around me early doors in the game, and I, just, I took it off him and skipped by him, and then Roberto Carlos, and I ran by him, and I remember just thinking, and I crossed it, or something happened. And I ran back, and I remember, it was like a light went off in my head. And I remember just thinking, I don't have to be scared of these guys. I know them much better than me, but I can outwork them or I can influence them. Mm. And uh, it was one of the most powerful moments I ever had in my life because it made me realize, as good as those guys are, they only got two feet, you know. And there's one ball between us. Who wants it more, you know. And I remember after I came in the dressing room after the game, we, we won. It was the second leg, and we got to a Champions League final where we played Valencia. And uh, I was still on like a reserve team contract. I, mean, I was getting a drink and Rummenigge was next to me. And he came in and he said, um, he said, oh, uh, tomorrow we'll do a new contract. You outplayed your old one. And, you know, and it wasn't about, wasn't about any of those things, you know, money or anything, but it, it came once you performed. And I love that about Bayern Munich because they were yeah. the first one to say, look, Let's do a new one. But I remember that moment kind of was my first moment where I thought I could make it here. But I like very much that the same light that had gone on in your head on the pitch had, had happened to Karl Heinz in the stand looking at him going, 
that guy's coming off the, the junior contract. This guy, this guy is getting tied to us right now. Well, and I didn't have an agent really at the time. Yeah. So I wasn't in position. Like now all these young kids, you know, that they got all these big agents and you know, agents all this leverage. 12. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. it, the game has changed dramatically, really. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm not necessarily the best storyteller in the world, but I want to build back to... Ninth of May 2001, when the light goes on in your head. The move from Calgary to Munich is, uh, you've documented it well, is, is, is tough. And in this series, we've talked a lot about loneliness. We've talked about separation from parents, what, what brings you through it. It's really interesting. You, you've speculated in the past that had there been electronic media, the bad days when you come home, and as, as well as you've done for the week, it's been a shit day. Yeah. You feel you, somebody's told you off, or you've had to clean the shower six times, or somebody's kicked you. On that day, you say to your parents, oh, this is, this is I'm going to. So that didn't happen. But you hadn't quite broken through to the senior level in, in 1999. Yeah. It's the 20th anniversary uh, next year of United's treble. Yeah. You're at the club, you're in the, I don't know if you're in a flat by then or you're still in the youth complex, but the club you are attached to is playing against a club which is, I don't know, 15 minutes' journey from the club that your dad adores, evidently passionately, Bolton Wanderers, it's Lancashire, it's northwest of England, it's, it's also England, it's, it's Beckham. So did you pretend that you were supporting Bayern Munich or, or did you, were you already attached? You know, we were, we How were, the hell did you handle that game? We were, we were there with the under-18s, we were in the stand and uh, I remember uh, the game, Bayern were, you know, were better really. They, they mean, ran the they, game they for 90 minutes. But they just, you know, united that bit of magic at the end. And uh, I remember we all sat, I remember we were kind of in the back of the goal. I think the goals were on the other end. And we were going to a youth tournament in, in Rotterdam after it was quite a big youth tournament uh, in Feyenoord that they used to host. So the game finished and, you know, we had all screamed our lungs out. And we all just sat in shock, shock. And a lot of us had lost our voice because, you know, we were really just like cheering things on. So for me... If I, if I work for you, you got my heart and soul, right? So I wouldn't say I had my eyes on, on my, even though, you know, I always thought it was a special club. I was at Bayern Munich. I was in the academy. I wasn't even a first-team player. That was it. I was, I was cheering for Bayern Munich, you know, and then we were all stunned. So for me, you know, I never really laid it down the line that two years later I could be in a Champions League final in that same spot that those guys were. was... Um, that's, that's what I was going to ask you, because I, I, I suspected, 
I mean, watched you and listened to you, that you were rote vice of the Bavarian kind, not the old trapper kind. But, like, what was the atmosphere in the club? For, because, you know, I was there that night. Um, to me, it was the Aberdeen manager going up and lifting the trophy. There were tears in my eyes, even though it was United. Um, but the shock value was there, the watching United and how they reacted to it and how Fergie quickly saw players he thought maybe just got a little bit too big for them. But he said so. Um, he said so the following season when Monaco knocked them out. What was the atmosphere like around Bayern Munich at that stage? Was it just never talked about, like, we need to put that right quickly and win the European Cup? When was the first time somebody mentioned it to you again in July when you're back in training? Or was it never... A, even approached. Omar Hissel was a great manager because he wasn't, he wasn't emotional. You know, he, he was very, very factual. And I don't think we spoke about it dramatically in terms of it was just, you know, f- football is, is, a, is a beautiful game, but it can be, a, you know, a, a, an awful game at times as well because the highs and lows of the emotions are, are difficult to manage. So I think you, if you're in it, you understand that, you know, the highs are great and the lows are low. And that would be a, that's how big a low as you'll, you'll ever get. But the Germans have, were so mentally tough, you know, and the expectations of the football club were always at, at the highest level. You know, we used to come in after games. We'd win, you know, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge would be there and fans back about Uli Hoeneß and they said, that's, you know, that wasn't good enough. 2-0, you guys, you know, you got to put them away earlier or something. So it was always, you know, it was always you got to win the league and then you you, you got to try and do really well in the Champions League. And so for us, next year... Same expectations, and we had an experienced group of players, and um, we were fortunate enough to be able to to get back there pretty quickly. Yeah, not not so much fortune. I was also as a punter. I was in Milan um, that night, where your performance against Figo and Real Madrid had helped the two-one win in the qualification for the Milan final. And it's only two years later. Penalties play a big part in your life, don't they? Strangely, yeah. I mean. I've, I've won two Champions Leagues on penalties and I've lost virtually every major tournament with England on penalties. Albeit that you scored against Portugal. But yeah, I mean, I've... I've Penalty shootout in the, in the uh, Dortmund Bayern Munich youth final that yeah. I mentioned before. Yeah, a lot of those moments were, were decided by penalties, strangely. And club level, I've had fortune, I've had success. And international, I've had none. So it's... What's your relationship with the Elf Meter? It's, it's something so different from actually football because football, the ball's always moving. It's more like golf, really, where the ball's still and you've got a lot of time to think. And if you're thinking too much, it's going to go pear-shaped. So, you know, it's not a f- hard physical task if you think about it, you know, from 11 metres to hit a stationary ball. It's, it's not that hard, but you've got to take into account all the pressure in the moment and the situation. And all these sports psychologists can talk about these things, but you can't recreate those variables without the situation itself. So I remember with England, you know, we had some of the best penalty takers you could ever dream of, literally. I mean, if you could draw them up, you'd take these guys. And we didn't win, you know. We, we, just, we just couldn't. I don't know why. But um, I remember being in and amongst those group of players when we, when we got knocked out in 04 and 06, especially 06. And um, it's quite a select... Even the guys that are in the squad, they're not in amongst the 8 or 10 that are taking them, Right. And so the boss picks them, and some people want one, and some people don't. And um, after the first one, you can feel it kind of developing, you know, good or bad. And I remember with England, I just remember it being eerily quiet, almost too quiet. 
which I understand because everyone's thinking, right? Everyone's thinking, God, you know, I, I want to score, you know, well, you know. But the problem is, and when I was in that, and we end up not winning with England, for whatever reason, I remember when I got in that situation with Man United after my experiences with England the couple of years before in the Champions League final against Chelsea, I remember Cristiano missed. I think he missed second. And I was next. Well, it, it goes for the point where, actually, had you not scored, Asi Cole was in a position to win the match yeah. rather than John Terry. Um, so I think that you maybe went third. I went third, yeah. yeah. I think Giggsy went first, Cristiano second. I remember when he missed, I thought, oh, he's killed me there. And, um, and I, I remember, you know, when you get up there, you have so much time to think really. And I remember going up and Balak was there on the Chelsea team, John Serry, Ashley Cole, Frank Lampard. And we used to practice pens with England all the time. And I used to always go top left without fail. Everybody knew Sorry, that. Sorry, just so everybody can picture it. So the goal's in front of me, my top left, yeah. Your top left. Like a free kick, basically. I whip it top left. And everybody knew that, right? So I guess as I've gone up, the Chelsea boys on the middle of the pitch are all pointing top left, right? And we had practiced it, you know, for a couple of weeks. And I didn't miss one. And uh, even the night before in the Moscow Stadium, Sir Alex told me to stop because I was just whipping them top, top pin. And uh, as I've stepped up, I thought, you know, it's just checking eye, walking up. And it's quite a, it's quite a slow walk, you mm-hmm. know, because it's weird. You're thinking, should I jog up? No, I don't really want to jog up. But it looks so overly already the mind. Yeah. You're not it, telling me this. You're listening to your mind in, it's, on it's the night. It's unbelievable how much you can process in in a 10 second walk and you know everybody's watching you and so as I'm walking up I'm thinking I'm sure those guys are telling check I'm going top in so I'm thinking mm, maybe I'll go bottom corner other side you know right? just most ridiculous <laughs> logic right so as I've it, no, it actually makes sense it remotely makes sense but so as I've gone up I thought I've looked at it checks in the goal he's like 6-4 isn't he and um, it looks good feels small so the goal looks different when there's a guy 6'4 in there and 30,000 people behind the goal. So as I've gone up, I thought, what am I doing changing my mind here? Good for you. What am I doing changing my mind here? He's in goal because he's, he's pretty good at his job. If he saves it, hats off to him. But he's not, you know, I'm going to do my best. If his best beats mine, hats off. And uh, I went out and whipped it top bin. And, and it was a great pen. And it was a great lesson for me to, you know, rather... You know, trust your instinct. You can think too much. And I think the people that succeed in these moments, whether it's golf or football or whatever, are the ones, because everyone's thinking, that, but can process the information without getting stressed or yeah. without changing their mind. Yeah. And I had lots of different things I was thinking about. But actually, when I went up, I stuck with my initial thought, even though I was processing different variables you you were bringing in maybe they've tipped him off and maybe yeah. that will help him yeah but you went like i know what i do well i'm going to do and what he I guessed do well. the right way but so they they had told him and he'd gone but i'm going to go with the information but he get, you know he was never going to save it you know it's a thrilling moment isn't it yeah it's you know it's not like i said it's not a hard physical exercise it's a really no. easy physical exercise for somebody that's hit you know probably a million balls it's, it's not hard but you know to to do it like you, you, the analogy of the Ryder Cup and stuff. Those guys hit golf balls all their life, but you know, the Europeans did it better than the Americans when the push came to shove. So, coping in that environment is, I think, a, a rewarding thing for for any athlete because you've you've trained all your life for those moments. Really, I, if I ask any of the guys now I work in TV with, I said, "How many games of your career do you remember?" You know, seriously, you played five hundred, eight hundred, 
And there's probably 10 that stick out for you, you know, really stick out that you remember and people identify you with. And some of those moments are the ones that a lot of people, if they see you on the street, they remember you and uh, moments that you remember. Because you, you can't remember every game, you know, you, you can't remember every moment. It's impossible. And fans, we obsess, we get geeky. So that's why you get asked so much about things like, fellas, I don't remember, but you'll remember this. And the word in Spanish is atrevido and it means cheeky. So I mean to be cheeky in the nicest possible sense, but given what we've just talked about, how in Milan did about, let me just count them, 50 players take a penalty and you didn't? Well, that was because of the hierarchy of the older and the young, you know. So I remember I said to Carson Yonker, it was just he and I left. Carson was a big, big And if board. Carson hadn't kept hitting the woodwork in the camp now two yeah. years previously, by a minute would have wrapped up yeah. that 4-0 win. Exactly. So I was a young kid. It was my first season. So it was more... I didn't think it was my place to take a... Even though I always took penalties. Right. You tell me you wanted one. I would have taken one, 100%. So I said, Carson, it's you and me left. And he said, he said I'm not going to take one. <laughs> and then, and then... At uh, least he was on yeah, yeah. And then Pellegrini, he missed. So I was next up, I, I think. So you were next up. Because you stand watching some of the penalties with your arm around Thomas Linker, who scores effectively what proves to be the winning penalty... So maybe you just transferred by osmosis a little bit of that Hargreaves elf meter technique in, in standing close to Thomas. Well, you know what? Going back to that experience with England, you know, where it was really quiet, you know, I really think that's where a team can help. And when we were with United and Cristiano missed the second one, mm-hmm. I was third. And then I came back to the huddle and, you know, we're, we're in a decent position. You can see a lot of people within themselves thinking... And in that moment, after what happened with England, I realized, you know, I got to get these guys to stop thinking, you know. So whether it was, you know, Rio or Nani or Anderson, any of them, I said, you're going to score, man. You're going to yeah. score. I know you yeah. can. You're going to smash your top in. Don't change your mind. Pick your spot, you know. And then people, you can see them rather than thinking, thinking on their own, yeah. you know, you engage them and you mm. can make eye contact and you can give them a bit of confidence. Because I think in those moments, maybe some people want to be on their own to think, but actually... It's important to, to be engaged so you can't overthink. And uh, I remember I spoke to Rio about it years later. This like, feeling started to develop, you know, where everybody was like together, you know. And strangely, John Terry, I don't know, he was the only player that slipped that night, you know. Of, of, I know the rain was coming down and, and everything, but it was like it just went in our favour. And football is sometimes like that, you know. It goes against you and then for whatever reason in that moment he slipped. And we win. This one's for your dad, who I take it's still with us and well in, in yeah. Calgary. Um, not long after the end of his Bolton Wanderers reign, when he helped steer um, the Trotters into Europe for the first ever time, I interviewed Fernando Hierro. He's quite an imposing and impressive yeah. kind of dude. And I wondered if a regal guy from Real Madrid had, had genuinely enjoyed the Reebok and Sam Allardyce and training in somewhere where you had to come back muddy in a minibus to you know, get washed at the stick. Yeah. I loved it. He said, he said a really funny thing. He's a tough guy, yeah, right? yeah. He said he was watching your final, the Moscow game, and he said when Terry slipped and the ball went wide, he said, I wanted to run on the pitch and hug him. Like, what? That's such a weird kind of sentimental for a tough guy to think like that. And I wonder when you watched it then, when you watched it back... Any sympathies for John? Oh, definitely. Keenan. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we, we had an England game three days later at Wembley against the US. Well, I mean, imagine. We were just beating Chelsea, and then we played three days later in a friendly against the US, and we had all sat there on you know one end of the table 
you know, one of the best moments of our careers. And the Chelsea boys had the opposite. So, you know, Frank and Ashley Cole and, and John Terry. So, yeah, and I had been with JT from even in the England under-21 teams, you know, coming through. So, of course, there's a human side where you really feel bad because, you know, it can happen to any of us. Mm. And um, in the end, it makes you realise how small and fine the margins are mm. in, in, in sport and football at the highest level. We have sponsors who are Bet365 and they've sent us in a question, which is for you. And it's one that bridges England, Bayern Munich, Calgary if you want. Was it the Foothills? Foothills, yeah. Calgary, Foothills, Manchester United. So the guys at Bet365 want to know, Owen, who is the best footballer in your personal assessment that you ever played with or against? I mean, it's difficult because it's like, how do you compare Paul Scholes and Cristiano Ronaldo? You know, Personal one, preference. You know, one is 6'2 and quick and can, can go both ways and, and, you know, and headers and all that. And Scholesy is just this genius of, 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 of a brain that is two steps ahead of everyone else that really physically with the attributes he had probably shouldn't be able to dominate football games like he did. Cristiano was was abnormal because you know physically he had so many dominant traits where he was big and strong and quick could both both ways free kicks corners everything Scolzi was just a player's player you know he was just sometimes I used to laugh it was so easy for him you know because he was just, he was just so gifted but I remember playing against Zidane I, I always loved Zidane and um, and then playing playing against him at Real Madrid with Bayern and stuff um, you know, I love playing against them. And you'd never tell your heroes that they're your heroes, you know. So you, in the end, you've got to compete against them. But I, what struck me about it, he was so quiet when you, you know, when you went around him. You, you could just hear him breathe. That was it. You know, he didn't really talk much, but he was just such a genius. So there's different levels of, of genius. Scolzi and Zidane were kind of mentally, you know, ahead. And, and Cristiano, you see those guys are like the old Ronaldo you know, when you're that quick and that powerful and that explosive, it's virtually impossible to stop. Whereas those guys were, were sharp with their with their brain. People, I've been lucky enough just to be near Zidane, maybe in press zones or tunnels or whatever. People forget, and I'm certain you weren't in any way intimidated. But people forget because of his elegance and what he did with the ball. And our amateur eye follows the ball as trajectory of a shot or a pass. But he was a serious physical unit. He was huge, yeah. yeah. I, I remember, he was the only guy who ever did it to me. Because uh, I was quite quick, and obviously I was a lot shorter than him. I'm guessing Zidane's probably 6'1", six, 6'2", six, maybe. And I was surprised how tall he was. And I remember he would, it would make it look like the ball was free. So he'd just leave it, say there's a couple of yards distance from us. He, like, like it was free. And obviously I'm a bit thick. I think, oh, I'm going to get it off Zidane. <laughs> and I would, I would dive in t- to take it. And he would just stick up this massive leg kind of just foot just off the air in his quad tense and as you went into it you just <laughs> straight into his quad you think and it was like a brick wall like, what happened there and he would just spin the other way and I, and I remember thinking what happened here he's literally lured me in like a bull rider or whatever and then he just spun the other way I remember actually Clapping in my mind for Zidane and going, I salute lad. you for Good that. Lad. I like that's that. a gentleman you, in football to go. Like, I just, didn't like what happened to me, but chapeau. You just, you just humbled me. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. 
please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.